0: Looking, throwing in the end zone, oh, it. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor! Young to the air, Young to Jerry Rice, touchdown San Francisco! Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle, Pass is caught by Owens! Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the 49ers Plus Podcast, I'm your host, Al Moriello and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussion and analysis plus timely and entertaining sports and pop culture topics and today we're going to be talking about the 49ers unfortunate 19-17 loss at Cleveland. We're going to go through stats from the game, discuss why San Francisco lost, it's pretty clear cut. I'm going to discuss five scenarios, situations, things that happened in the game that contributed to the loss, and two legit issues that I think the 49ers need to find a remedy to moving forward. In the plus section, going to give my thoughts on five games from this past weekend, two from college football, Stanford beating Colorado and Washington defeating Oregon, three from the NFL, the Raiders beating the Patriots, the Jets over the Eagles, and the Bills over over the Giants. But like always, it starts with the Niners. So let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners. Oh boy. You would think the sky is falling. The Niners getting their first loss 19-17. to I tried to stay off Twitter. And I think for the most part, I succeeded yesterday. Because what I saw, um, the brief taste I was given by Twitter morons... Twitter twats, twittyots, whatever you want to call them, you would think this game was more important than the war going on in Israel or more infuriating that they lost than the war that's going on in Israel. And, you know, we don't want to forget the one between uh, Russia and the Ukraine as well. Everybody's got to chill. Everybody's got to chill. We're going to get to that. But there are some things that the Niners do need to look out for and fix For later on in the season, but let's run through the stats. Total yardage, 334 to 215 for Cleveland. First downs, 18 to 15 for the Browns. Time of possession, plus six for Cleveland. Cleveland did have two turnovers, San Francisco only one. Brock Purdy, 12 of 27, 125 yards, one touchdown, one interception. He was sacked three times. PJ Walker playing in place of Deshaun Watson, had a Deshaun Watson like game, 18 of 34, 192 yards. Two interceptions, and he was sacked twice. Rushing for San Francisco, Christian McCaffrey, 11 for 43, Jordan Mason, 5 for 27, and a touchdown. Overall, they ran the ball 25 times for 108 yards and one score. For the Browns, Ford, 17 for 84, Kareem Hunt, 12 for 47, and a touchdown. As a team, 34 rushes for 160 yards and one score. Receiving, Brandon Ayuk led the way, 4-for-76. Juwan Jennings, 2-for-26. McCaffrey, 3-for-9 and a touchdown. For the Browns, Amari Cooper, 4-for-108. Kareem Hunt, 3-for-24. David Njoku, 3-for-24 as well. Niner sacks came from Nick Bosa and recently signed Randy Gregory. Interceptions by Fred Warner and D'Amador Lenore. And let's start off before we get into actual game stuff. So uh, Randy Gregory... Picked up a few days before the Cowboy game, former Cowboy, former Bronco, was not active for the Cowboy game, but was active this week, and he had a really good debut. Three tackles, three quarterback hits, one sack, and two tackles for loss. So I think that swap of draft picks, the Niners giving up a sixth-round pick for a seventh from Denver... In Denver taking on basically $13 million of Gregory's salary, and the Niners being only responsible for about for less than a million, at least this year, and they have him under contract for the next two years, but they will have to rework his deal if he continues to play this well. I think the the defensive end rotation now, or not the rotation, but the pieces are set. Bosa, Ferrell, Drake Jackson, and Randy Gregory. That's a solid four. That might be the best four that the 49ers have had since Kyle Shanahan has been been here. Now, let's just jump into the, the big question. The big thing that's got, you know, things jammed up fans' asses and in a non-sexual way and have has people on acids and just all sorts of pissed at the world. Why did San Francisco lose? Here's your simple and logical and factual reason. The Browns played better on offense. And the Browns played better on defense. That is it. Did the weather play a little bit of a factor? Yeah, but both teams were playing in it last I checked. Cleveland has the number one defense for a reason. They held Purdy to under their passing yards allowed on average for the season. And that 125 yards was still their third Uh, It wasn't their lowest showing. The Bengals and the Titans both had less passing yards than the 49ers did. Titans were under 100 yards. The Bengals were right around 100 week one. San Francisco did run the ball well, though. They ran it for a little over four yards a carry 108 yards. In my opinion, not enough carries. And that was over the Browns average of about 70 yards ish a game if I am remembering correctly. So 215 total yards, again, it was right around or under what the Browns were giving up. And 334 yards is more than what the Niners were giving up. So Cleveland outplayed San Francisco on both sides of the ball. People want to complain about refs or or this or that, or we're going to get into that. Fact of the matter is, the 49ers got outplayed. It happens. They did not get shut down by a crap defense. They got shut down by the number one defense in the league by far. And just because you don't see this team, they were on, what, Monday Night Football a few weeks ago at Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh wound up winning that game. Just because you don't see them doesn't mean they're not good. Cleveland under Jim Schwartz is a legit, beyond legit defense. They're number one for a reason. I picked them up in both of my fantasy leagues for a reason. I didn't start them this week. I started the Saints, and I would have gotten two, two more points if I would started the Browns instead. They are legit, guys. They can stop the run. They will challenge and play press and stop the pass. We saw it all game. They made things extremely uncomfortable for Brock Purdy. This is clearly the number one defense in the league. No 49er homer should come out of that game saying, oh, I think San Francisco, even though they're ranked third or fourth, they are not a better defense than Cleveland. Not right now. So let's start how you know how the game started. A fantastic first drive like the previous five games for San Francisco, six plays, 84 yards. Purdy to McCaffrey on a 13-yard shovel pass for the touchdown to go up seven nothing. McCaffrey dominated touches on that drive, four of six. Cleveland gets the ball, their first drive. Fred Warner intercepts PJ Walker, takes it back to the Cleveland 26. Now at this point, you're you know you're feeling feeling pretty good, like okay, you know maybe the Niners can can put this game away early or get up maybe big, have Cleveland play from behind, make them one dimensional dimensional tee off on PJ Walker. That first that next drive that San Francisco gets to start at the Cleveland 26. They go backwards. Backwards from penalties, bad plays, and then Jake Moody misses a 54-yard field goal, slightly wide right, which was something to come later on, shades of things to come. Later on, but if you're talking about a mid-50-yard field goal, that's kind of a coin flip, right? Not, not a huge deal. But still, San Francisco gets another possession later on in the half, goes up 10 to nothing with 754 left in the half before Cleveland mounts an impressive drive capped off by a Kareem Hunt touchdown to make it 10 to 7 at the half. Second half possessions for the Niners were as follows. Brock Purdy's first interception of the year, punt, 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 touchdown on a very short field after uh, Walker had intercepted, punt, and a missed field goal at the end of the game. All four 49er punts were three and out. Credit the Browns. The Browns made the 49ers go three and out. They were stopping the run to a certain extent. The Browns put the clamps on the 49ers in the second half other than the final drive when Moody missed the field goal. There was a time in the second half where the Niners had one yard of total offense. That's all Cleveland. That's not just Purdy missing throws for the hell of it. That's not running backs just running into a defensive lineman or their own lineman at the line of scrimmage for the hell of it. This is... Cleveland forcing this this is Jim Schwartz the defensive coordinator I think I'm gonna get the number hopefully right he's either like I think one in one Shanahan Kyle Shanahan is one in seven or one in nine against Jim Schwartz led defenses Schwartz has Shanahan's number and if everybody wants to make fun of the Sean McVay Kyle Shanahan one-sided thing and and Sean McVay is Kyle Shanahan's son and Shanahan owns him other than the NFC championship game Hey, man, turnabout's fair play. Got to say the same thing. Jim Schwartz owns Kyle Shanahan. Now, let's talk about things that contributed to this loss. All right? Penalties. San Francisco had 12 penalties for 105 yards. Not to be outdone, the Browns had 13 penalties for even more yards. Sloppy game. Not just because of the weather, just a sloppily played game game. On both sides, penalties hurt San Francisco because they found themselves behind the sticks a lot. And that means facing a first and long, a second and long. And when you start off a drive, first and 20, it's hard to dig out of that. It's hard to dig out of that in general. It's so much harder to dig out of it against a team with this good of a pass rush. With this good of a defense overall. Run and pass. It's not like they have a weakness. That oh you can maybe throw on Cleveland. But you can't run on them that well. They are stout across the board. I mentioned pass rush. Yeah Purdy was sacked. Um, What was the stat here? He was sacked three times. One of them was the fumble. When the ball slipped out of his hands. And he recovered it. That's considered a sack. And the other one was as he was scrambling. And he got tripped up an intentional grounding, which I'm not actually sure if that's considered a sack or not. I should kind of take that back. Three sacks. You didn't hear from Miles Garrett that much. You didn't hear from Cedarius Smith really at all. The Niners' pass protection was good enough. Did the Browns generate a pass rush and make things uncomfortable for Purdy? Stepping up, navigating the pocket, stepping out of the pocket? Yes, and we knew that going in. Trent Williams called Miles Garrett, you know, a, a future Hall of Famer, and he is, had five and a half sacks coming into that game, averaging what? I think it's one and a quarter sacks a game. The Niners, oh lot, Colton McKivitz, did you hear him at all? You know, usually, you know, when Mike McGlinchey has a bad pass protection game, you see it in previous years. It was apparent. McGlinchey held his own last week against Dallas and this week against Cleveland. Um, I so hopefully I didn't say McGlinchey. The O-line played well enough, but penalties, when you're starting off first and 20, first and 15, second and 20, if there's a hold, it's hard to dig out of that. And then now let's let's, let's address the um the elephant in the room that a lot of people want to blame. No, we'll get to Nick, uh, Jake, I, I keep saying Nick Moody, which is so funny because I think he was a he, linebacker for the 49ers in the early to mid 2000s or early 2010s. It's Jake Moody. And the fact that Nick Moody, like a nobody linebacker from 15 years ago, is on my mind more than the name Jake is is sad for me. Um, We'll get to the kicker later. Brock Purdy. He had his worst game as a 49er quarterback. It was going to happen. He's allowed to throw picks. He threw one. I don't think he was the reason that they lost the game. No one person... No singular player on that team is the reason why they lost. It was a combination of things in addition to the Browns outplaying them on both sides of the ball. Purdy was under 50%. What was he? 12 of 27. Only 125 yards. He was missing throws. There was a choice route by McCaffrey where he usually comes out of the backfield and cuts inside, but he he stuttered. And then took the linebacker deep, and Purdy missed him by a couple yards. He was throwing behind receivers. The interception to Ayuk, which was uh, an in, a deep in from the left hand side. He threw high and behind him. Ayuk was open. Was weather a bit of a factor? Sure, it can. Contri- it certainly contributed that fumble. I don't think the ball slipping out of Purdy's hands would have mattered there. And that's another possession where if he doesn't fumble and they even gain like five yards, they're in possession or position. To maybe try another field goal attempt. And get three more on the board. Did not have a great game. And it's because of how Cleveland played the 49er receivers. They played a lot of man. They were challenging receivers. Ayuk was getting separation. There wasn't much from anybody else. George Kittle on the day. One reception for one yard. He's got to be better. Whether Kittle was looking for him or not. Sometimes... And I'm not even sure where Kittle falls on the pecking order third, I guess, behind um, Debo and Ayuk. And with Debo getting hurt, he should have been option number two. But he needs to be force-fed the ball the way the Chiefs do with Travis Kelsey. They need to scheme up just ways to get Kittle open, whether it's a zone, and find ways to force him the ball. Because once you get Kittle going and it's usually going to be underneath stuff over the middle, that will open up your outside passes as well. They did not, whether Purdy was looking or not, and he does well with his progressions, especially for a second-year player, Kittle having one-for-one obviously wasn't going to cut it. They needed more production, especially after some of the injuries happened, which we're going to get to. But here's the thing, guys. Usually, you know, if Purdy's going to have 27 pass attempts his line would probably be something like maybe 18 of 27, 20 of 27. So you're talking about six to eight incompletions off of really where his average is. And that's all Cleveland. That's all Cleveland. I don't think Cleveland rattled him. Cleveland made it tough for the 49ers to pass and in the second half to run as well. Although we're going to get into that, the, the Niners and Shanahan did them no favors or did their team no favors there. However, before we get off Purdy, last drive of the game, a gotta have it drive of the game, Purdy delivered. Yeah, he was three of seven. One of those was a spike, so he completed 50% at the last play before the field goal to kill the clock, completed 50% of his passes, got aided by a defensive pass interference call um, on Jawan Jennings, which was a legit call got the team down the field to the 23-yard line, did his job. If Moody makes the field goal, the narrative on Brock Birdie completely changes. Today, he can't play in bad weather, can't play when it rains, can't play against a good defense. He might be a fraud, which, which some of the moronic uh, 49, 49er 49 fans are saying, can't drive the ball in... in in weather, which he doesn't have the strongest arm in the world, but I don't think no balls were being short-hopped to his receivers. He was kind of miss- he was missing long. And maybe that's the, the Browns' pass rush. He was had to get rid of the ball before he wanted to. But if Moody makes the kick, the narrative is, even though Purdy had a bad game, 12 of 27, when you needed it, at the end, he drove his team down there for the win, all because of a kick. A kick, made or missed, should not change the narrative on how a quarterback played. If you want to say Purdy played like crap, stick with that. A win-loss doesn't change what you saw on the field. I thought he played okay. I thought he played okay against an elite number one defense that have made other quarterbacks look bad also. There is no shame in that. It's a like... Anything in life, when you fail, you learn from it. Brock owned it. Everybody on the team owned it. There will be better days. There will be better days. Purdy was not the reason they lost. Threw a touchdown, threw a pick, led them down when they needed to. The most pressure-packed drive of the game and put his team in a position to win. Now, number three, Amari Cooper, had a big game, went over 100 yards on four receptions, but really made two big plays. He had a 58-yard reception uh, down the left sideline. Diamandor Lenore fell down. I, you, basically anybody could have made the throw to him to complete, and then he had some yards after the catch as well. Then he made a really nice leaping reception on the right-hand sideline over Charverius Ward, and Ward just jumped way too early. He is the same height as Amari Cooper. He's, he's got long arms. He would have been able to challenge that or knock it away if he timed his jump right. But two big Amari Cooper receptions put the Browns in position for points. Number four, injuries. Now, however much you want to take stock, put stock into this, the Browns were missing Deshaun Watson and their best offensive guard, Joe Batonio. So it's not like the Browns didn't have injuries, also, but Debo Samuel left early in the in the first quarter with a shoulder injury. X rays are negative, and MRI will be happening today. There'll probably be results of that um, by the time you listen to this. And he was he, he was thought of to be in considerable pain at the end of the game. The team is thinking it's nothing too serious. They don't play their next game is a Monday nighter against Minnesota, so that he has an extra day to heal. There's injury one, Trent Williams, injury number two, got hurt in the first quarter, came back in, didn't look good at first, couldn't tell if it was his knee or his ankle in the slow motion replay, someone fell on his lower leg, went out, came back in, and here was a quote from Trent Williams after the game, it's football, and I just tried to fight through it for my teammates, I know they got a... Hell of Fame rusher over there in 95, Miles Garrett, and I wanted to get back out there so I could kind of help my team try to contain him. I didn't want to put backup tackle Jalen Moore in that position. Trent Williams is a man. Obviously, if you're a professional football player, like you are a dude. You're an alpha male, but considering how big he is and that ankle having to support that weight and move shuffle your feet and block a powerful edge rusher every snap. And to do it for your teammate, because he didn't want to put a young player in that position. Trent Williams is a man. He, he's a dude, man. And I, I hope in some weird sort of way that playing on, he was in a boot after the game. He was in a walking boot. He does have an extra day to heal against Minnesota. Maybe that's a game where they sit him. Because maybe they can beat the Vikings, you know, without Trent Williams and not further aggravate the injury. Um, but the fact that he, you know, played through it, maybe it kept the ankle warm longer. You know, like if you sprain your ankle and you don't do anything to it the next morning, you wake up or you keep it, you keep it stiff. It's really hard to loosen up again. He played for another two plus hours on it. Maybe he did more damage. I'm trying to be optimistic and think, you know, maybe it still loosened that ankle and kept it from sti- He didn't do any further damage to it, right, or else he would have left the game. So I'm just trying to be optimistic. We will see and probably know later in the week. Christian McCaffrey left in the third quarter with a rib-slash-oblique injury. Tried to come in for one play, could not go. And then on top of that, before the game, linebacker Dre Greenlaw did not play. So they were they were down three players, three essentially Pro Bowl players, Greenlaw's never made when he's but he's a borderline Pro Bowler going into Cleveland. Uh, could they could have could they have used everybody healthy? Would it have changed things? Maybe. I don't know. Cleveland came to play. Did it make maybe Kyle's play calling different? Not having Debo in there and not having McCaffrey? Yes. But I've said this in previous podcasts. I feel like this offense with Shanahan and McCaffrey being the shiny new toy is too dependent on McCaffrey. Is he great and dynamic and a touchdown in 15 straight? Yes. Touchdown in 15 straight games, all of those things. But you can't have Jordan Mason with just five carries, even when McCaffrey's healthy. I want to see more of what a team like the Browns did. Ford got 17 carries. Hunt got 12. I want running back number two, Always to have 10-plus carries in this offense. And right now, they did bring Eli um, Mitchell in for, I think, two carries, and he had like negative one or negative three yards. Was ineffective. Now, he's coming off of a knee injury, uh, working his way back. Maybe the knee isn't 100% still. I don't know. But I think Mason, at this point, should be running back number two. He is more of a hammer than McCaffrey. He's more of a hammer than Mitchell. And if you want to make Mitchell your number three and and he's maybe a blend of like speed and some power, that's great. But Shanahan, when the pass, nothing really was working right in the second half, but the pass really wasn't. They should have committed to the run more to not to at least, you know, if you can get three yards, you can make it a second and seven. You can get five yards, a second and five. And if you get an incompletion, a third and five or third and seven, set yourself up for shorter conversion pass plays because it opens more of your playbook up. Once McCaffrey went out, the running game more or less didn't exist. And this was a tight game and a game that the Niners got up, you know, um, 17 to 16 and they still were not running the ball. And Kyle loves to run the ball. The Cleveland Browns, and here's like an, an, an exception I take to this game. The Niners knew going into it that there's A third-string quarterback coming up from the practice squad, but really not a practice squad quarterback in P.J. Walker since he started five games in the league. They knew that passing was going to be maybe a little bit of an issue and that they were going to try to run the ball, right? It was going to be more of a run-based attack. Well, in a weird sort of way, they ran the ball 34 times, 460 yards and a touchdown. How did the Niners not shut that run down when you knew you had QB3 playing, But they also threw 34 times. So balance. 34 passes, 34 runs. Now the Niners had 27 passes, 25 runs. You could say that's balanced also. But with how aggressively the Browns were playing the pass, I would have liked to see a little bit more frequency out of the running game. And what the Browns did on the ground against a team that knew that they're probably going to have to run the ball a lot to protect P.J. Walker... They ran it for almost five yards of carry, and they threw it well also other other than the two picks that P.J. Walker threw. All right, so injuries didn't help, and, and here's number five, and this segues into the whole, you know, the running thing. With the Niners up 17-16, to 16, with 321 left, Browns used one timeout, so they had two left. The Niners had the ball, their own 20, 25, whatever it might have been. Kyle calls three straight passing plays. What happens? Intentional grounding on Purdy. Brandon Ayuk for 10 yards. Went out of bounds. And then an incomplete pass. They took 16 seconds off the clock. So now there's 3.05 left in the game. They have to punt it back to the Browns. And the Browns have two timeouts remaining. Plus, obviously, the two-minute warning. How he doesn't run the ball there on first down, I don't know. Maybe it's an obvious running down, but still... Give it to Mason. I mean, at worst, he's going to get stuffed at the line. You're going to make it second and 10. But what happens? Grounding, and it winds up being second and like 20. So the worst possible thing happens. Penalty, stops the clock, lost 10 yards, loss of down. I have no, like, I would have been okay with three straight runs Punt it. May Cleveland use your timeout. There are two timeouts. And then you, well, you couldn't have taken it down to the two-minute warning. But let's say each play is five seconds. So to maybe 316 in a timeout. 311 in a timeout. Then you run the ball. You know, you take 40 seconds off. The Browns would have gotten the ball back with maybe two minutes and 15 seconds. And yes, they would have needed um, a, t- a, a field goal to win the game. But... At least, I would say at least two runs. You run it on first down. You, I think you go play, play action on second down to show the run. Maybe you can sneak a pass in there. And then if not, I would still run it again on third down just to kill, either kill clock or kill timeouts. This drive reminded me of the final drive. Well, the final drive that mattered in the Super Bowl against the Chiefs. They're near midfield. They're down 24-20. to 20, He passes it four straight times with Garoppolo. A running team. And it's nothing against Jimmy. A running team. Coming off the NFC Championship game when Mostert had, what, five touchdowns and over 200 yards. Kyle did not run the ball once on a final drive where, yes, you need a touchdown, but you're already at midfield. And you want to take time off the clock for what, if you do score a touchdown and make it 27-24, that you're leaving so little time that the Chiefs can't even get into field goal range. Instead, four straight passes, lose the Super Bowl. Not saying they would have won it if they ran the ball, and I'm not saying they would have won the Cleveland game if they ran the ball, but I can't believe after how difficult it was for them to pass, especially in the second half, that they did not decide to run the ball. And part of me thinks it's because McCaffrey's out, and that beyond comfort level or Bromance man crush that Kyle may have on McCaffrey. McCaffrey's great. I'm not taking anything away, but he's not your only running back, and you can't have such a drastic fall-off running the ball when McCaffrey's not in there. And it wasn't like they couldn't run. After they got the into second interception, Yamadura Lenore returned it to the eight-yard line. Mason ran it in from eight yards. He ran like his hair was on fire, like a wild man. That's not going to happen every carry. He's not going to average 8 yards a carry, but the fact that the attempts aren't there is discouraging. What happens this upcoming week in Minnesota if McCaffrey has to sit because his his rib or oblique is bothering him and he really can't play? What They run the ball 12 times all game because McCaffrey's not in? I want to see balance. I, wa- I want to see balance more equitable balance in the running game. If you want to give it to McCaffrey 17 times, I want to see RB2 get it 10 times. Because you know McCaffrey's probably going to get four or five receptions on top of that. Pound the rock. Don't just pound McCaffrey. That's not why McCaffrey got hurt. I'm not even suggesting that. I'm just saying you have to make RB2 viable, beyond viable. He's got to be a that's got to be a 10 carry per game position. Now, I know people want to blame the refs, and let's start with the P.J. Walker grounding or uh, forward pass. That could have been a fumble that wasn't. Guys, it was close. It's one of those plays where if it was called a fumble on the field, it would they would have stayed with that. Did it look like his arm was coming forward? Absolutely. I'm not going to be a BS Niner fan and say, oh, his arm wasn't coming forward, or did it look like? The ball was coming out. The ball certainly slipped out of his hands. What Did he have possession of it while he was moving his arm forward? I don't know. That's hard to tell. Remember, clear and obvious. You can only turn uh, overturn a call if it's clear and obvious. Was it really clear and obvious if you look at it objectively? No, it wasn't. So that's why whatever the call on the field was, it stood. I was okay with that. Now, the personal foul on Tayshawn Gibson, third and ten late in the game. This is the drive where the Browns kick the go-ahead field goal. Browns in their own end. Gibson hits, was it Elijah Moore? It was a smallish receiver. And Gibson doesn't launch himself shoulder to shoulder. And Elijah, the receiver Elijah Moore falls, looked worse than it was. It was not. That was not a personal foul. Dean Blandino, I think, was kind of brought in, and they were talking about it, It was not a personal foul. Of course you could tell things in slow motion if you're helmet-to-helmet or where you're hitting. These refs are human, right? Real-time, it's hard to see, and it was a hard hit. So when it's hard to tell and hard hit, they're going to err on the side of caution or flags or whatever and throw it. I will say this, though. If that was Amari Cooper... Or Donovan Peoples-Jones and not a small receiver like Elijah Moore, that hit would not have looked nearly as bad. Tayshawn Gibson's not a big guy. I mean, well, bigger than me. I guess he's like maybe six feet, 2", 210", two, whatever. But he made that hit and just still was on his feet. It's not like he got rocked or fell or whatever. Like, Elijah Moore is a little dude if that was the receiver a little receiver made that look worse than it was. It's like the Shaq effect in basketball. Shaq, when he was playing, before the whole Hack-A-Shaq thing, never got as many fouls called because he's such a big dude. The contact, it wasn't phasing him. You really had to hammer him to get a, a foul call. Sometimes, not all the time. Physics. Physics plays a role in flags. Don't think that it doesn't. Now, later on, on that drive, um... Traverius Ward got got called for holding, I think it was on Cooper, that that didn't continue the drive, it was either like a first or second down, it was an incomplete pass, but Ward got called for holding. I understand you can't touch a receiver literally at all after five yards, but then at the same time, how many times do you see receivers and cornerbacks jostling, fighting down the sideline, making contact, and that's never called? There's got to be some sort of consistency between, can you touch him or not? Can you have, like, if a a corner's, if a uh, receiver's running a curl and you're running with them and you have your arm on their back, but you're not tugging the jersey, you're not affecting the route, that can't be a flag. This one was close. It didn't look like a flag. I think the um, Sauce Gardner hold against the Chiefs however many weeks ago was much more of a flag than this was. And I don't even think Sauce Gardner's hold should have been called a hold or pass interference or whatever it was. Penalties. Both instances, you can't give... Especially Gibson, right? The He he didn't know that the ball was high and there was no way... Like, the receiver had no play on it. You can't put... You can't give the refs that choice, right? I know it's football and people want to make big hits. You can't make the hit there. You got to maybe, like, pull up or, or something to not even give the refs the chance to throw the flag. There was no need to, quote-unquote, blow him up. And if he saw... If he had any vision above and saw where the pass was going that it was really uncatchable he could have avoided contact altogether it's a bang bang play easy to say after the fact can you imagine if Dre Greenlaw was out there how many personal fouls would this guy have gotten he's good for one a game right doing something stupid he might have been the one that would have smacked he would have smacked Elijah Moore picked him up off the ground and given him a pile driver because that's just what Dre Greenlaw does all right Nick Moody missed two field goals and after being perfect for five games, after five games, 49er fans are on their knees, sucking at the crotch of Moody, but he misses two field goals, one of which a 54-yarder that he ju- he barely missed, wasn't bad from 54, and the 41-yarder he just pushed as well. Now, does it matter? A good miss, a bad miss? No, but it's not like he shanked the shit out of it, and and you've seen we've seen games where. The moment's too big for kickers, and they shank and choke. He pushed it. It was a windy day there. Even Was it Dustin Hopkins? Even the Browns kicker missed one. It happens. But, of course, people are saying, oh, you know, Robbie Gold wouldn't have missed that, and they should have signed Gold, and this, that. Like, Were you asking for Gold for the first five games? No. Then you shouldn't be asking for Robbie Gold now. They're rolling with Nick Moody. He's going to have better games. He's had five great games. Let's not crucify him for one. And it's unfortunate because the game ended on his field goal. Miss. Now, two issues that I do see that could be an issue for the 49ers moving forward. And I mentioned, here's number one. I mentioned this earlier. The Browns played a lot of man. They played a lot of press man. They challenged the 49ers receivers basically all game and they only the Niners only looked good on that um first drive, <laughs> first drive and last drive. And the last drive, the the Browns were playing a, a little bit off because the underneath stuff, the shorter passes, the outs, the ins, they were there for Purdy. They weren't there for the majority of the game. Now, did the Bre- so did the Browns press more because there was no Debo and McCaffrey? Mm, maybe. Right? But there's still, you know, you still have Jennings, you have Ayuk. You have Ray Ray McLeod. You have Kittle. You have any running back who apparently can catch now out of the backfield. So that shouldn't be an excuse or a reason why, you know, the Browns maybe were playing more man than they, they do. They play man the, the vast majority of the time, the majority of the time every game. They're, I think, in the 60, 65% of snaps that they play man. They come after the quarterback. That is Jim Schwartz's style. We've seen it. All season and yesterday's game, IU can beat man. IU can separate. He's the best receiver on the team. He's the best route runner on the team. And he has really good hands as well. IU can separate. Can anybody else? Debo, I wouldn't think, is a phenomenal route runner. Jennings, suspect hands, big, not that fast. McLeod, he's got speed and he's shifty. Like, Got to get him in open space. Got to get him open. We didn't see any bubble screens. We didn't see any, you know, quick screen throws to the receivers or McCaffrey and have them do anything. And maybe, again, Debo wasn't out there. McCaffrey wasn't out there. But you could run with other people. These are professional football players. These are big boys. And I did mention, you know, the Ayuk and the good hands thing. This game is probably different, right? Was it the first quarter or second quarter? Brock Purdy threw a nice deep ball to Ayuk. Ayuk didn't catch it. It was kind of at his head level. Ayuk might have gotten his, his arms up late. Dropped. If he doesn't drop, that's a touchdown. Purdy misses McCaffrey. Uh, deep because the blitz kind of came at him. Or else that could have been a touchdown also. So missed, like, there were some missed opportunities. Cleveland made the big plays when they needed to with Amari Cooper. The Niners made big plays on defense. They got two interceptions. Lenore bringing it back to the 8-yard line. But on offense, there were two big plays out there. The Ayuk play and the McCaffrey play, and the Niners did not connect. Or else this could have been a different game. So issue one, if the Niners are going to see teams that are going to challenge them and play man, the Niners need receivers that are going to beat it. And the team that could do that is Seattle. Seattle's got the corners between Tariq Woolen, Devin Witherspoon, and I don't know if Kobe Bryant's going to play the slot or whomever. They don't have the pass rush that the Browns do. They don't have the personnel overall that the Browns can do. The Browns might be the only team that can do that. Because that D-line is so good, and that secondary is pretty darn good as well. But the Niners might be seeing more man. And they might be seeing more man and not, not blitz. They saw man, but a whole lot of blitz against the Giants, which left a lot of hot routes and things open for Purdy to connect on. But it's different when you're playing man, and you're only rushing four... And able to play man up plus safeties and linebackers under it. Or even behind it. That's different. That's a different type of throw you have to make. A tighter throw. Not to say Brock can't do it. But it's different than playing zone. And issue number two. The Niners run defense. I'm not... They've been really good for five games. Right? The Browns ran for 160 on them. The Niners still have a good run defense. But here's the two issues with this. One, they knew the Browns were going to run. QB3's in. P.J. Walker. Yes, some starting experience, but they knew he was in, and they knew that the Browns would have to run the ball. The Niners didn't really stop it when they needed to. 35, was it 35 rushes for 134 rushes for 160 yards. Browns won that matchup. Browns have a good offensive line, even with missing their guard, Batonio. Browns have a good offensive line. Is this going to be a trend that when the Niners face a good offensive line, they're going to have difficulty stopping the run? They play Philly. Philly's got a good offensive line. Detroit's also 5-1. and one. They don't play this year. Could meet in the playoffs. Philly's got a top three defensive line. Philly's probably got the best offensive line in the league. Is that going to be a problem? Is stopping the run or even generating pass rush going to be a problem for as Good as we say the Niners D-line is, and as deep, will a good offensive line either neutralize or significantly minimize the impact that the Niners D-line can have on both the run and the pass? Something to keep an eye on. We are going to dive into the Niners-Vikings preview on our Thursday podcast, so much more to come, and any housekeeping items. We'll talk injury updates, we'll talk pro football focus ratings from this game, and anything else, any any quotes that come out from Shanahan or players that I think are noteworthy to share. But I'm just going to leave you with 5-1. Did, th- did anyone think they were going undefeated? If you're going to get a loss, this was a good loss. An AFC loss. It wasn't a division loss. It wasn't an NFC loss. The Eagles lost, which helps, and the Lions are 5-1. and one. Everything's still out there in front of San Francisco, right? Everything is still out there. So that's going to conclude the 49er section of the podcast for today. Please stick with us. I'm going to give my thoughts on five games from this past weekend. Stanford, Colorado, Washington, and Oregon from college football. Then we'll dive into Raiders, Patriots, Jets, Eagles, and Giants. Bills, stay with us. It's plus time. So college football had a couple of noteworthy games, at least some interesting and exciting finishes that I wanted to talk about. The first being a Pac-12 matchup between Stanford and Colorado at Colorado. Colorado is up 29 to nothing at the half. They wound up losing by three in overtime, 46-43. to Stanford came back to win the time of possession battle by nine and a half minutes. Colorado had one turnover, none for Stanford. Both teams passed for uh, nearly 400 yards. Colorado went for 400 yards. Shador Sanders, five touchdowns and one interception. Stanford 399, four touchdowns, and no interceptions. Colorado's issue is they can't run the ball, they're not balanced at all. And when you're up 29 nothing, you should be able to run the ball because that's it's a four score game, still. If you're looking at you know, touchdowns and two point conversions, four of those would make it 32 29. But more often than not, for Colorado, Shador Sanders is their leading rusher. He's the quarterback. That's not going to work. And Colorado does have some issues stopping the run as well. Credit to Stanford. This is why you don't give up. This is why it's called, you know, you're, you're chipping away. One drive at a time, one play at a time. They're cliches, but but it's also true. You can't get 29 points back in one drive. The best you could do is, you know, seven or eight. And Stanford got stops when they needed to. You know, both teams had over 500 yards of offense. It was an offensive show, but you would think up 29, Colorado would have adjusted more offensively to maybe kill clock and really put Stanford away and limit Stanford's possessions. Kill clock, limit possessions, and you generally can't lose when you're up that big. Now, for Colorado, they have to think about this for two weeks. They're on a bye. And then their schedule is not fantastic. They're going to be at 25th-ranked UCLA, at home for number 12, Oregon State. Verse, at home for Arizona, who just destroyed Washington State, I think it was 44-6, knocked them out of the top 25. Then they go at Washington State, at Utah. Two wins of these five games would get them to six and six and possibly in the running for a bowl game. I mentioned you know a couple podcasts ago that there's no way a bull, um a bowl is gonna pass up Colorado and the, the notoriety and media attention that Dion and his team is gonna bring. Well, if they had their choice, that is true, but Colorado still needs to finish at a certain, standing in the top in the pack 12 to also be eligible for a bowl six wins will make them eligible and they could still always get kind of like an at large bid to maybe a crappy bowl because again the Deion sanders effect colorado media the notoriety that's going to come with it but if they want a more legit bowl they're going to need to finish in the top i've got five or six in the pack 12 and that that's going to be tough because they only have pack 12 games remaining So they think if they win three, they're in great shape. Great shape for a bowl. They can go three and two the rest of the way. If they go two and three, could get a little dicey. Now, the biggest game of the weekend from a ranking standpoint was Washington ranked number seven, beating eighth-ranked Oregon 35 to 33. Oregon statistically really controlled this game. They had 126 more total yards, seven more first downs, Eight and a half more minutes of time of possession. No turnovers. Washington only had one. Quarterback Bo Nix of the Oregon Ducks threw for 337 and two touchdowns. Um, Pennix Jr. of Washington, 302, four touchdowns and one interception. And on top of that, for the Ducks anyway, Oregon ran the ball 40 times for 204 yards and two touchdowns. If you throw for 337 and you run for 204 on 40 rushes, you should not lose a game. And the reason why they lost the game was because Oregon got stopped 3 times on fourth down. Twice was inside the 10 and one was at midfield at the end of the game. I've said this before about Kyle Shanahan and it applies here. Oregon's head coach, there's a difference between being aggressive and reckless. Twice inside the 10, those field goals are basically extra points. That's six more points you'll get. (coughs) And then at midfield, they wanted to end the game. right? So, when it was uh, 30... 3-32, 3-32, I'm sorry. They were at midfield, they could have ended the game, they went for it on fourth down, did not get it, then Washington scored a touchdown with a minute 38 left to go up 35-23. to 23. So it was 33-28 Oregon at midfield with a minute 38 left, or with um, close to two minutes left. But you're up 33-28, one field goal makes it 36-28, Another field goal from the 10 makes it 39-28. I know in a game like this, coaches think, well, field goals aren't going to win. I need touchdowns. But you took six points off the board and you got stopped three times on fourth down. That is how you lose a game that you... I'll use the word dominate. Dominate statistically. Good for Washington. Oregon played well, but... I think this is a situation where if you want to lay blame here I think the coach lost this game for the Ducks. Now let's transition to the NFL. The Raiders beat the Patriots 21-17 so the pupil Josh McDaniels beat the master Bill Belichick. Although the Bill Belichick has been the master of nothing this season. The Raiders outgained the offensively challenged Patriots by nearly 100 yards. Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt again, his back unfortunately. He was actually taken to a hospital. Uh, I think it was during the half. Brian Hoyer came in, but all told, Raiders quarterbacks threw threw for 264 yards, one touchdown and one interception. By contrast, Mac Jones of the Patriots, 24-33, 200 yards, one interception. The problem with the Patriots, it's partly Bill O'Brien. He is not getting the most out of this offense, and there is no one on this offense that scares you. It's... Uh, Ramondre Stevenson and Ezekiel Elliott at, uh, running back. You have Kendrick Bourne. Juju Smith-Schuster was actually out this game. Um, and a few other receivers that are basically number twos and threes. Nobody, and it's amazing how they actually beat the Jets. (laughs) Granted, this was early in the Mac, um, Zach Wilson run for the Jets and we'll get actually to them next. But no one on offense scares you, and the Patriots are one in five for the first time since 1995. Well before Bill Belichick took over, we'll see what Belichick's going to do. He's he will never get fired midseason. and He's not going to step away. But if this if this keeps going the way it's going, they wind up being a four or five win team. And they have the ability to get a top quarterback in the first round of this upcoming draft in April. Then Bob Kraft, the owner, has to evaluate, does he want a coach who is in the twilight of his career to be the one to oversee this rebuild with this new quarterback? With the understanding that Belichick could potentially walk away at any minute. You know, if things get bad, he could just be like, listen, I put my time in. I won six Super Bowls. I'm done. I don't think Belichick's going to have the patience or the stomach for getting rolled the way they are getting rolled this season. Hey, at least they scored 17 points. That's 14 more points than they scored in the past two games combined. Let's see if it's going to go from bad to worse for the Patriots, who sit at one and five. The Jets, thank you, Jets, beat the Eagles 20 to 14. Another game where Philly should have been in control statistically, anyway. Philly had more than 100 yards more than the Jets did. Seven more first downs. Time of possession was even, but there were four turnovers by the Eagles, three interceptions by Jalen Hurts, and a fumble. The Jets went into this game without Sauce Gardner, without DJ Reed, without their top uh, nickel. And you would think that the Eagles receivers of Devonte Smith, um, et cetera, would have a huge game and hurts through for 280 yards, 28 of 45, 280, only one touchdown. The Jets defense, the Jets back cornerbacks were up to the challenge. Really? AJ Brown had a good game, but really not much for, for anybody else. And Zach Wilson, I said last podcast, he had to be the reason why they won. Not just a reason to not lose, Well, the Jets' defense played so well that Zach Wilson was okay with just being the reason why they don't lose. He wasn't the reason why they won. He did go 19 of 33 for 186 yards, no touchdowns, no turnovers. Played good enough. The Jets' defense won them this game, obviously getting four turnovers. And running the ball, both teams had difficulty. You you would think maybe the Jets might, maybe Philadelphia would stack the box a bit. The Jets went 21 rushes for 89 yards and a touchdown. Philadelphia, 22 rushes for 80 yards and a touchdown. So they both averaged less than, well, the Jets were a little over four yards a carry. Philadelphia, under four yards a carry. The fact the Jets shut down the run was super impressive. They let Hertz get his yards. He did get a touchdown, but they took it away three times. Once toward the end of the game on a really bad decision by Jalen Hurts. But they still had, they got the ball back at the end with the ability to um, go down the field and score a touchdown, and the Jets stopped them there again as well. Kudos to the Jets, 3-3. and They ran a gauntlet of quarterbacks um, the first six weeks, and the easier part of their schedule is ahead of them. The Jets don't look now after such a disastrous start, injury-wise with Aaron Rodgers, record-wise, um to start the first 3 weeks of the season they could make a run at a wild card spot that, that's playing through adversity you got to give the jets credit who we're not going to give credit to is the giants or Bro- coach Brian dayball offensive coordinator Mike Kafka uh or really Tyrod Taylor and we're going to get into that even though he played like a decent game so the bills beat the giants 14-9 This was a game that was even statistically overall, but the Jets, I'm sorry, the Bills did turn the ball over twice. The Giants, not at all. Tyrod Taylor played a clean game, 24 of 36 for 200 yards. Josh Allen, 19 of 30, 169, two touchdowns and one interception. Saquon Barkley, his return from a high ankle sprain, 24 rushes for 93 yards And Tyrod Taylor added five for 24 yards. And a lot of the discussion, and rightfully so, is going to be around what happened at the end of the first half with eight seconds left. The Giants were at the two or three-yard line. Tyrod Taylor audibles to a run, gets stuffed. The half ends with the Giants up six to nothing. They They should have at least added a field goal, which... Could have made the end of the game a little bit different. But instead, and here's Brian Dable was incensed, as he should be. Tyrod Taylor's enough of a um veteran quarterback that unless the audible is to another pass, you should not be audibling. Just you know you have really one play in the field goal. And that play should be a pass. You know, you can't take a sack. You have to throw it out of bounds. Where if your first or second read isn't there, you just throw it out of the back of the end zone. Kick a field goal, go up 9 nothing to end the half. Two score a game. And the audible, when you saw the play from above, like the Skycam, he audible to a play where the offensive linemen were blocking down, which means to the left, and the run was designed to go to the right. So he, Barkley literally had no blockers. He got swallowed up by three Bills. So, I mean, if you if you accidentally audible to a run, but it's a run that you're actually gonna have blocking for your running back, then you give your running back a chance. Terrible decision to audible and a terrible audible to run to, to, to audible to a terrible run call. Bad all around. Now the end of the game, 14 to 9, the Giants get down the field, pass interference, Gets him at the one-yard line. It's an untimed down. Texting with my friends during the game, a couple of which being Giant fans. And I just wrote, my first text was, Tush push time. That is statistically your highest percentage chance of scoring. Quarterbacks convert, or sometimes it's not quarterbacks, but a QB sneak from the position of quarterback on a 4th and 1, converts 83% of the time since 1999. And what's funny is, 4th and 2 quarterback sneaks convert 90% of the time. Figure that math out. They're at the 1-yard line. I would not... Again, any play you're going to come up with is not as high a percentage play as a QB sneak. You don't even have to do the tush push if you if you don't have or the brotherly shove if you don't have experience Pushing on another man's hamstring or ass to get him in the end zone Then just have tyrod taylor do it. He's a big strong guy To me and this isn't even after the fact. This is what I was saying in real time You either have darren waller come in motion or line up in the backfield with barkley Tyrod Taylor sneaks it, you have Darren Waller, who's a big dude, and Saquon Barkley, who's got thighs like tree trunks, pushing his ass and body in the end zone. If if you want, I haven't heard Brian Dable, if anyone's asked him that question after the game, if if the excuse is, well, three of our linemen were in, we didn't think that we could get the push, then you're a fat, bald-headed moron. That is your highest percentage play. You did not put your quarterback in a good situation or your team to win it at the end. Even with the friggin' dumb gaffe at the end of the first half, you had a chance to steal this game. The defense played so well. You held Josh Allen to under 170 passing yards. You got two turnovers. Yes, the end of the first half thing was a terrible thing, and Brian Dable, you should be pissed about that, but how do you not call a sneak at the end of the game. I don't think any giant fan if you got stuffed on a sneak would have complained about it. Because they they might not have known that that's your highest percentage chance of converting and scoring. I didn't know at the time, but I researched it and found out. And you would also think like, hey, I'm a giant fan. I'm in the same division of the Eagles. I see the Eagles do that a lot. Why don't we do that Daybol and Kafka? So, just... Oh, so dumb. And listen, I have no love lost for the Giants or Jets. I'm actually happy for Jet fans because the Jets have had so little for so long. And then the Rodgers injury happens. And then Zach Wilson looks like hot garbage. And now they're three and three. That's like a feel good thing. The Giants overperformed last year. A wild card, won at Minnesota, got killed at Philadelphia. Everybody knew that they were going to take a step back. But everyone also is falling all in love with all their shiny new weapons, and they should be so much better. Yay, we got a lot of number two and number three receivers. They don't matter. But you had a chance to, you know, two and four is so much different than one and five. One, psychologically, to go up to Buffalo and get that win, when you, not that you tried to give it away at the end of the half, when you didn't do yourself any favors, and you still could have won, and now you're one and five. And the season is more or less over unless you could really pull out some wins and go, you know, uh, seven and and four the rest of the way. But the Giants have scored five touchdowns in six games. What makes anybody think this is going to get better? I mean, I I shouldn't say that. Substantially better. Can't get worse. Can't get worse, right? It's not like in their next six games they are only going to score three or four touchdowns. I guess it's possible, but Barkley's back. I don't know if Jones' neck injury is going to linger, but you see you have something with Tyrod Taylor. Maybe there's a little chemistry with the receivers. He played a clean game against a good defense, 24 of 36, over 60% completion rate. And there's going to be easier teams coming up than the Bills. But the Giants are 1-5, Jets are 3-3. If anybody would have thought those records with Aaron Rodgers being hurt And the Giants, yeah, Jones is hurt for one game, Barkley was hurt, and they lost some linemen. Those are some important pieces, don't get me wrong. But it's not the losses, even though that's big, it's how they've lost. They've looked terrible. Giants are terrible, Jets are on the upswing, and Aaron Rodgers is healing from an Achilles tear. Who would have thought? So that concludes the podcast for this week. As always, I want to thank you for listening, for taking time out of your busy schedule to make us part of your uh, audio adventures for the day. The next podcast will be on Thursday, where we, again, some housekeeping items from the Niners-Browns game, and then we're going to go deep dive into 49ers-Vikings Monday night, 8 o'clock or 8.15 Eastern Standard Time on espn the niners looking to bounce back and hopefully they get some players back uh health wise debo mccaffrey um greenlaw and then we'll see what's going on with trent williams angle but until then stay happy stay healthy stay safe and we will talk soon take care